You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Alan Mintz, Chief Executive Officer of Senegenics Medical Institute. Uh, today we're discussing an approach to better health care that has been founded by Dr. Mintz. Dr. Mintz, could you just give us an idea of the vision of your institute? Senegenics Medical Institute was founded on the premise that we could, by being very proactive and really practice preventive medicine, that we can lead healthier lives longer. The focus is not living forever or living even to be 100, but living the years that we have with the highest possible energy and quality. What does your program include? It starts with a very basic but very comprehensive evaluation process that's actually seven eight hours long and starts before the patient gets here by obtaining blood work and a very exhaustive history, which involves not only medical issues but lifestyle issues as well. A uh, patient is seen by a physician uh, of the six, eight to eight hour day, half the time, four hours is actually with the doctor. Prior to that visit, all of the information we have on the patient, the history, uh, lifestyle issues, and lab work, discussed by our entire medical team of about 10 people. So the patient, even before he comes in, has the benefit of having a, a lot of his information reviewed and discussed with the examining physician prior to the visit. In the material that I read about your organization, you talk about age management. Could you describe that for me? Yes. Aging is a process. It is not a disease, as some colleagues out there might call it. it it's something that we all go through, so by definition, it's not a disease. By identifying an aging as a process, it implies that it can be managed, just like you can manage risk and you can manage your budget. So if we look at aging as a process, understand its components, what contributes to it and what can save it off, we can manage that process, and that's what we're all about. Not trying to avoid it, not trying to prevent it, not trying to be a child forever or forever young or forever beautiful, but how do we live out our 80 or 90, maybe 95 years with everything working? I notice in your literature also that your patients had increased energy and mental acuity on your program. How did you measure that? Well, energy is subjective. But when people were sleeping a bad seven hours or eight hours and now are sleeping a really good six hours, when they can do things with their kids and grandchildren they couldn't do before, when they can run up three flights of stairs when they had trouble walking one before, that's, you know, good about energy. How did you know that this wasn't just a placebo effect? I mean, you're a very charismatic person, and I can see that your patients might have better results under your care than somebody else. I thank you. That's always a possibility. But when it goes on for years, it's not a placebo effect. We're 10 years old. We reevaluate our patients quarterly. Uh, we do uh, very sophisticated cognitive testing, uh, which measures short and long-term memory, response time, et cetera. That's repeated annually as bone density. And when these tests continue to improve or at least stabilize over time after having improved, that's pretty objective evidence. Do you do double-blind studies? We don't do double-blind studies. Our patients pay us. But when you have thousands of patients, empirical data has a lot of meaning. You know what? Let me talk about double-blind studies. Double-blind studies were done on Vioxx. Double-blind studies were done on Celebrex. Look what happened. Okay, double-blind studies are not the panacea or even necessarily the best answer for understanding what truly happens with the patient population over time. Well, it, it's been really the gold standard by which we do no harm to our patients. What? Unfortunately, then it's not working, is it? Because we do a lot of harm with so-called double-blind studies for three or six months that go on and then patient comes on the market, FDA approved by people who are going to take cushy jobs in the pharmaceutical industry, so they have a bias towards approving a particular medication even without particularly advanced studies. What about all the years, for instance, with Galileo and observation? Does that not give us value? 
that, you know, we can't look at the double-blind study as the only way to get new knowledge. I'm not saying they don't have a place, but to say that that is the only standard by which we can acquire knowledge is somewhat naive. And I'm not willing to buy into that. When we do do double-blind studies, however, we're kind of cautioning the patient. We're warning him, and also we're not charging him. All right, but we are charging our patients, and therefore we can't do double-blind studies. Most of the double-blind studies are funded by pharmaceutical houses who have an ulterior motive of wanting to sell a product at the other end. So they fund a study in the hopes that they'll get approval. We just funded two studies at the University of Miami, outstanding retrospective studies that will be published shortly, pretty much establishing the results that you and I are talking about. We are about to fund a prospective study on the effect of growth hormone and endothelial growth factors. Our cancer and heart attack statistics are one-sixtieth of the general population. I'm not claiming that that's going to be our long-term result, but for now, over 10 years, age-matched, sex-matched population, one-sixtieth of the general population. So I sleep pretty well at night knowing that we're not doing any harm. Have you published that data? That's certainly interesting we, that's data. That's the reason. No, we haven't. We don't have double-blind information. It is somewhat generic, and it's not been as controlled as it should be. That's why we are, now, we are now funding studies with the University of Miami to prove these results. What are the age of your clients? We call them patients. Um, I'm sorry. 60% men, mostly between... Not covered 40. lives. So that's become a new word in my practice, covered lives. And, of course, no, you, have no no, no. you have no covered lives. We have no covered lives, and we would never go there. The insurance industry is, is almost Machiavellian in its practices. That's another discussion. You asked me our patient population, primarily 40 to 65. We have a few patients in the 20s and early 30s who've just fallen through the cracks. They're hormonal disasters. They usually come in loaded with antidepressants, which is pitiful unto itself because they really have hormonal issues and they're just being told, go push away from the table, there's nothing wrong with you, when there's much wrong with them. We also have wonderful patients in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, probably several hundred of them. But the bulk are 40 to 65, 60% guys. So you have patients who are in their 30s who you might indeed give hormone-optimizing treatment to, which could include testosterone, DHEA, or growth hormone. No, it would never include testosterone. Major problem, by the way, that our endocrinologist friends don't recognize when you have a young person, usually under 50, but sometimes even to the 60s, if they have low testosterone, the proper therapy is almost never testosterone. It is a stimulating hormone that mimics LH from the pituitary gland. If you do a proper evaluation, you understand that the reason why testosterone is low is not that the testicles aren't able to put out testosterone. It's that LH, the stimulating hormone for testosterone, the latex cells, is very low. So you need to turn up the rheostat, not punish the testicles. If you give testosterone to a younger guy, you'll get a positive effect clinically, but you'll also get testicular atrophy. And if you start with this younger population, would they stay on medication indefinitely? Sure. It's never going to get better. The goal is to keep the endocrine system optimal. If we all know, and I think we all agree, that there's a continual falling off 2 3 4% a year, it's never going to get better on its own. Now, you, the next question you ask me, what happens if you stop? If you do this right and you stimulate, like with HCG, rather than replace with testosterone, if a patient stops, think about an exercise program. You're active for two years. You feel great. You stop, the benefit fades over time. But I think you would agree that having exercise, you're better off than if you'd never have exercised. If you do hormone stimulation and supplementation correctly, you stop, you obviously will stop the supplementation, but the baseline to which you will return is better than it would have been. And so you have no problem with patients staying on medications for years and paying the costs of the medications and your care? Well, you've got to figure out what's your most treasured asset. If you look at all the Mercedes and Lexus and BMWs running around on the streets, they're far more expensive than our therapies. So where do you want to invest? 
for me, I'm going to be 70. My life's a 10. I'd like to stick around for 25 more years, maybe longer, if, if I can do it with quality. That's my greatest asset. I cannot think of anything that is a better investment for me or my family than taking care of my health. You're implying that people are paying us money, and of course they are. They've decided that it's a good investment. I have no problem charging people money for bringing them value. I have no problem being profitable as long as I have created for that patient the opportunity that is not being provided by my colleagues, that is certainly not available in the insurance system, and I have no problem collecting that money from them. How would you respond uh, to their, therefore not being, a, according to you, a level playing field, that a certain kind of care is being provided and we're not extending that care to everybody? I can't respond to that. Some people have a nice home. Some people don't live as well. This is a capitalist society, thank God. People work. They can buy certain things that you can't have otherwise. I didn't create the, the mess that medicine is in. I'm not responsible for it, nor can I possibly fix it. But I can offer the opportunity by giving people the education so that they understand that they have an opportunity to influence the future of their health. It's an educational opportunity. We present data to people. We present our credentials to them. And they make the decision as to whether or not health is a priority. I, I don't have to respond to the fact that I can't solve the world's problems, Dr. Picker. It's, you know, it's, I give to charity probably more than most very generous person. I'm not bragging. It's just part of my life and who I am. So I certainly do my share giving back to the community. We do a fair large percentage, 10-15% of our patients are done pro bono who need help and can't afford it. That's probably more than most physicians do in practice today. So, you know, that, that's a loaded question without a positive answer. I cannot solve the world's problems. One other question I'd like to ask from reading your material. You mentioned that following your regime, often patients can stop other medications. What were the other medications? Oh, just as we mentioned briefly before, cholesterol-lowering medications. They can get off of um, diabetes type 2. We can pretty much cure that most of the time. So if there are things like glucophage, glucophage or whatever, we can get them off of that. We can get them off blood pressure medications because you can lower blood pressure effectively by having appropriate lifestyle issues, diet, exercise, and by hormonal therapy. Well, I, I don't think anybody would argue with lifestyle changes are certainly necessary, that exercise is certainly necessary. I think, you know, the, the problem that we come into is hormonal optimizing to treat diseases such as, like you say, diabetes. Well, you know, Maury, I'm not out to change everybody's opinion. In fact, the longer my colleagues resist, it's a greater opportunity for us. Our patient schedule is now out to the summer. People are sick and tired of being sick and tired and getting absolutely no answers from their doctors. If they spend eight minutes with their physician, that's the average office time. That's ridiculous. The doctor cannot possibly engage his brain to help a patient in eight minutes. So if you want to talk about problems in the system, look at the system as it currently is and what it is not providing. When we accept a patient, we deal with that patient initially for over eight hours. We're probably 10 hours if we look at the, pre, the preparation time. We're both physicians, and it brings up an interesting point. How do you deal with the concept that a doctor who provides value in an emergency room situation at 2 in the morning and is compensated at lowering values continuously economically? I think it's abhorrent, Dr. Pickard, but I think the AMA and organized medicine has led itself down the path. There is absolutely no excuse for the current political positions that the AMA takes, and I'm a life member of the AMA. There is absolutely no excuse for what our profession has allowed to have happened to us. I also noticed in your material how you, one, don't accept insurance, and then 
mention HSAs, MSAs, flexible spending. Sure, sure. But of course, there are those, lots of tools and vehicles the, for people. Those are all geared towards again the same population that has found their way to you. In other words, people who do have, shall we say, a better economic place than most. Doctor Pickard, I'm not going to be able to save the world, and nor will I allow you to cause me to feel guilty because I can't take care of everybody. We all have guilt. We grew up with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, that, but that's neither here nor there. I'm offering an opportunity for the people who want to take it and who can afford it to access medical care at a level way beyond the system provides. I want to thank Dr. Alan Mintz, who's been our guest, and we have been discussing his medical treatment at Senegetics Medical Institute, Las Vegas, Nevada. I am Dr. Maurice Pickard. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.